Welcome to the Guerrilla Project podcast. The Guerrilla Project's end goal is to return to the Congo Basin and shoot a feature film to spread the word about preserving gorillas. We're currently working on the story and the screenplay, and these podcasts help us decide which events are compelling enough to include in the film. Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Guerrilla Project. You'll hear the true stories from some of the world's most prominent scientists who are helping to prevent the extinction of gorillas, study their behavior, and protect the forests where they live. You'll meet these people. What do they know? What can they do? And what would you do if you were in their position? Get an inside look from the front lines of the war against deforestation, poaching, and climate change. You're listening to The Guerrilla Project. Hello everyone, welcome to Luango National Park. We are at Yatuar Gorilla Research Camp. My name is Sonia. I'm the current manager of the project and I will introduce you a bit to the project and our gorillas. So it's a project who started in 2005. Our research camp was established in 2007. And more or less since then, we began collaboration between Max Planck Institute, which is the society that established the project in the first place here, and ANPN, L'Agence Nationale de Parcs Nationaux, which is the national agency for national parks in Gabon. So, um, we created a group of chimpanzees. And they found uh, our second group of gorillas, the one we are tra- trying to habituate. And the chimpanzees, they took the baby, one small baby less than one year old, and they killed it. We were just grabbing it while running and uh, hitting the baby and it was very brutal and finally the baby died. This podcast episode explores this incident. On February 6th and December 11th, 2019, researchers in Luongo National Park witnessed, for the first time, a coalitionary killing of gorillas by chimpanzees. This behavior is unprecedented in the history of primatology, and it forces scientists to study what is happening to cause it. Hi, my name is Lara Southern, and I'm coming from Osnabrück University in Germany, and I wrote the paper titled Lethal Coalitionary Attacks in Chimpanzees on Gorillas in the Wild, where we recorded observations at our field site in the Loango National Park, Gabon. The scientists witnessed nine direct interactions between the Rakombo community of chimpanzees and the unhabituated gorillas in Luongo National Park in Gabon. These events were peaceful, occasionally involving co-feeding and fruit trees. So from from what we think, we, they were getting along before because, we, so as I've said, we've only had them habituated for about four or five years now. And so that's kind of our, that's our snapshot into the history of this group of chimpanzees. We don't know what they did before that. But from up until this point, so uh, February 6, 2019, everything that we knew about kind of gorillas and chimpanzees, we thought that they, there was this kind of levels of mutual avoidance. So when you'd be in the forest and what you usually get with gorillas is you get a scent. So you can, they, they, they really smell very strong. And uh, it, once you're a chimp researcher, you can very much distinguish between this chimp and gorilla scent because it's very, very different. And we spend the whole days around chimps. And so whenever we were in the forest, we would smell gorillas quite a lot. You could see the feeding tracks. You could see tracks, um, their, their um, footprints. And so we always knew they were there and we'd hear them sometimes. And the chimps, it was really almost like kind of an indifference. Um, and we did have these nine encounters. And I think what, what was so interesting was that one I even got to witness was when we had gorillas and chimpanzees feeding in the same tree. It was a ficus tree. So it's uh, figs, um, one of the favorite fruits of, of chimpanzees and gorillas as well. So that makes sense. But peacefully feeding. And so all 
it wasn't something we thought about more because that was more in line with the research that had been done at other field sites. And so when these attacks happened, it was really something that I don't think I would have ever been expecting on any level. Then on February 6, 2019, history changed forever. So that that morning, um, we do what we always do. We get up very, very early to go to the nest site of our chimpanzees where they slept the night before. So that's how we do kind of our, our focal follows. We follow one individual per day. And it's the most exciting part about field research because you never know what's going to happen. And so that day, I actually, it was a very exciting day for me because I had an assistant with me. She was a new research assistant. It was her first day in the forest with these chimpanzees. And on this day, we set out to go find our chimps, which were about five kilometers from the camp. And little did we know that we would walk about 35 kilometers that day. We went on one of the biggest um, patrols. So for anybody who's not familiar with chimpanzee patrols, what they do is in order to defend their territory and um, kind of explore the boundaries of their territory, just check that everything's in order. They go on these huge walks. Um, where they're very silent and they smell everything, they kind of check everything out and they're looking for neighboring communities. And so on this day, they decided to do that. And it was very interesting for our assistant because she was, it was a brand new experience for us. She was going, is it always this hard? And we walked really, really far to the very edge of their territory. And we eventually, it was at the very end of the day, all of us were just ready, kind of done, ready to go home. It's, it's, you're, it's, it's, it's like dinner time for us too. We're just ready to put the chimps to bed. We let them go nest. And then we were all ready to go home. And it was um, already when the forest was kind of getting dark around five o'clock. And that's when all the kind of crazy commotion began. So they had come back into the territory and they were re-entering their territory after this big, um, Inter like patrol. So so when we were when we were coming up, we went into this really really dense piece of forest, and I was following my focal um, individual who was Pandy, and we were following him. And after a while, you kind of start to lose sight, and we heard this very um, distinctive scream of a chimpanzee called Freddie. And once we heard that scream, we, I then heard immediately after the scream, I heard a very loud bark and I immediately knew that that was not, I, I did my head did kind of like a double take because they're always screaming, but it, this bark really stuck out to me. And then after that, it just exploded and you could very much hear. So a chimpanzee and a gorilla sound nothing alike. And then it was just this crazy kind of cacophony of noise. And then, yeah, we, we didn't have very good visibility at first. We also try and really keep our distance because they're completely wild animals. And we also have a very like high safety protocol. So it was more about trying to see less, but be safe and keep them safe. Um, but yeah, we tried to find a good vantage point after that to see what was really going on. During this encounter, the chimps attacked a group of five gorillas, one silverback, one infant, and three females. So it was it was a really crazy time, and there's always kind of these negotiations in the forest between when's the time to leave and versus like your observation of what kind of data you're going to get. And of course, as scientists, we're were much more I was I was I was completely fixated and I was like we're staying here this is one of the like this is unprecedented I've never seen this before I've never heard about this before um there's literally gorillas and chimpanzees like interacting with each other we need to stay and see what happens um a lot of our field guides of course are a, le a lot less on kind of the interested in the data um that's being collected and so they, they were very much like this is not 
okay, we need to leave. And it was very much like a trade-off between us and me. So we kind of found this middle ground of where we could stay and watch from a very far distance and kind of just monitor the situation. And we were always going like, okay, five more minutes, five more minutes. The chimpanzees made alert calls, barks and roars. The gorillas responded by roaring and barks of their own. The silverback charged a female adolescent chimpanzee named Gia and sent her flying into the air. It's, it's, it's pronounced Gia, but it's fine. <laughs> Um, so Gia, she, she's unfortunately, she's immigrated. So chimpanzee females, once they get to a certain age, they leave their natal groups. But at this point in time, she was still in the group and she was one of my favorite chimpanzees. She was always a really big, um, always a big explorer. She's, she's kind of didn't seem like a young female. She was really always with the males. And um, she, we saw her. So as I said, we were trying to keep our distance and we were quite far away behind a huge log, trying to just kind of like peep over the top. Um, and just kind of make ourselves known, but be far away enough that we were not at all interfering with anything that was happening and any social interactions. And what we saw was Gia had, so it was basically, if I could describe it kind of like a ball of chimps and gorillas, and we could really see the silver back was in the middle, but it was, it was just a kind of a mess and more, it was more than noise rather than really what we could see. But what we did see is Gia uh, so she's a small chimpanzee. She's about, um, she was a juvenile at that time, maybe about uh, eight or nine years old. And she got, she kind of got thrown back. So we saw her just kind of like get thrown out of this fight. And chimpanzees fight a lot, but this was really, I was, I was very worried about her. The male chimps responded by surrounding the silverback and attacking him. The silverback retreated with his family. The researchers later observed that the chimps captured the gorilla infant, then passed it around for an hour and beat it to death. We never found the, the body of the gorilla that, that um, was taken that day. Gorillas differ genetically from chimpanzees as much as humans do, splitting from their shared ancestor approximately 8 million years ago. Chimps exist in areas spread out from Eastern Africa to Central Africa. When they resort to hunting, they hunt insects, birds, lizards, and monkeys. And so in terms of what we know about their kind of behavioral diversity, it's still quite limited. And so when these attacks happened, we were all completely shocked. But at the same time, we were we were still kind of we were like relaying the information back to our supervisors who are stationed in Germany and who were hearing this for the first time. And so that was always those first few days of just kind of like the write up and trying to kind of capture every single detail in the exact way that it happened. That I would say that's the most challenging part and just being really, really thorough and going over your video footage over and over again. The second event occurred during the start of a suspected territorial patrol just outside of the border of the Combo chimpanzee territory. I was there for both encounters, yes. My my supervisor, one of my, my professor here, to be a stationer, he told me, he's like, how come you're always there? Like, what are you doing to these poor chimps? Because it was really just the chances of just these two days. I mean, it's a super rare event, right? It was two times and um I I was I was I can't really say happy to be there, but I'm I'm happy for 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 having to see these kind of observations, and I think it's a super interesting topic. So I'm happy in that sense that I was able to witness it. But yeah, it was it was crazy both times. It didn't get any easier, and I think one of my only strategies for kind of these things, or and I think anybody working with wild animals know that this is a completely natural phenomenon, and you kind of have to see it like this. You kind of take yourself out of the picture as an observer. And you are just that you are observing something that is happening um, that you don't really have any say on, if I can if I can say it like that morally, because they are they are entirely different species and we we're not in their minds. We don't know what they're thinking. So it's 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 very easy to make prejudgments about their kind of behaviors. 
Um, and one thing I found that's really helpful is always to watch animal behavior through the uh, be, from behind the lens. So when something kind of crazy is happening or when something is uncomfortable is happening, if you just film, um, there's almost this like kind of um, wall between you and what you're seeing. And then you kind of remember your place as just an observer. So that's always something that helped me. And that really helped me in both of those instances to kind of just document what I was seeing um, rather than put my own kind of opinions on what I was seeing. Yeah, so that that was also a hard day. Both of these were really um, kind of long days. That day, they, they were way up in the north. So these both happened in completely different parts of the territory. And that's also really interesting. But it, it just goes to what they were kind of eating at the time. So chimpanzees are very mobile. They're constantly just going around um, eating whatever food is ripe so they'll spend lots of different time in different parts of the territory and um, on December 11th we were up in the far north and whenever we go up there everybody kind of gets a little bit grumpy because there's the big swamps and when there's swamps it means you have to swim and so when we were going towards the the big northern swamps um, everybody was already kind of like ah, oh, they're going to go on a patrol and you could see the chimps had changed their kind of behavior once they get outside of their territory they get very quiet um, and it was exactly the same as the behavior they had had on the 6th, which is what they do when they're going into neighboring chimpanzee communities, usually. Chimpanzees organize their hunts in groups, listening for specific vocalizations, preying on birds, monkeys, lizards, insects, and other non-primate mammals. So what chimpanzees do is when they're on patrolling, there's kind of these... Um, definite signs to look out for, I would say, so, or that have been seen across multiple field sites and that usually take place. So they'll walk in a single file. So if you ever see kind of chimpanzees, usually when they move through the forest, they're kind of all spread out and kind of like some people are over there playing and some of them are walking, some of them are feeding. But when they go on patrol, it's like it very much changes and they go into this single file, kind of almost looks like a military line. And they get very, very silent. And chimpanzees usually can be very loud. So it's a big difference. And they, there's no little um, kind of who's to each other. They're very silent. And what they do is they'll sniff all of the vegetation um, as they're walking along. Or if they come across like a fruit fruiting tree with fruits on the ground, they'll smell all the eaten fruit to figure out if there had been other chimpanzees there, for example. So there's a lot of these kind of tense moments where they'll like pause mid-step and they're just very on edge and listening. So it was it was Freddie um, who was in front with a female called Joy, and they were traveling again. And they so Freddie he kind of he got up and he stood um, bipedal. So chimpanzees will often do this when they want to get a bit better look at something. They can use they can go up bipedally, and he got up bipedally and he immediately started with these alarm barks. Um, and my initial reaction, because I had already seen them on patrolling behavior, was that they had found a chimpanzee group. Um, and I was, I'm always like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen? So we were all already kind of in like full alert mode. Once you hear those alarm barks, you know that there's something in the area that's dangerous to them, which is sometimes dangerous to you. So we pay very good attention to what they're doing. And so he got up on all fours and then immediately the group was all there. And that was kind of the start of that encounter. And it was very different because the second time we found the, the gorillas up in the trees and they were feeding very high in a tree. And it was it was hard at first. I mean, it's hard. We were very far away and it was you could kind of just see the silhouette. And so originally we didn't know if they were chimps or gorillas. And then we we heard again, we heard the vocalizations and that's how we knew. The chimpanzees encountered a family of seven gorillas high in the trees. They climbed up to attack them. However, all was lost when the silverback climbed down from the tree and fled. So the silver. I don't know if we can say shouldn't have done. It's it's a pretty hard decision sometimes in in that case. I think you know you're there. They were like 
seven gorillas up against a group of uh, 27 chimpanzees and you chimpanzees make are very vocal they're very loud and they cooperate this is something we talk about in the paper as well they're very cohesive in terms of the behavior when their group when they feel like their group is threatened or when they're going into doing kind of a collective behavior all of them participate and this occasion was kind of no no yeah it was no different to that they were all really fully involved down to the level of like juveniles were barking at these full-grown adult gorillas which is something that I haven't really seen before and so that was that was really um it was a whole group activity and so in the sense the silverback fleeing I think it was also just a choice of maybe like personal safety and I know we have I don't think that I think it was a really probably a hard choice to make. It was there was already several other gorillas. I don't know if we mentioned that in the paper, but the gorillas had already fled. So there had only been two females and two babies left in their group. So he was I think it was also kind of maybe an initiation of movement that he was trying to get them to follow him. Um, but yeah, he did flee pretty early on. And the other two females were left very, very high up in the canopy. And then it just kind of became this. Um, the chimps were able to kind of climb up the tree and trap them up there. The chimpanzees chased the female gorilla through the trees, across the swamp, cornered her, and snatched her baby. So there was, there was, we didn't see the the eventual. There was, there was a moment when, because there was two. It was a bit complicated. There was two female adult gorillas with two babies, and one was much larger. And this was the first interaction we saw where the um, the chimps were really trying to grab the baby. And there was a gorilla called Taya who and Gump, who actually got her off of um, her mother. And then the mother actually grabbed it back. And we have this really amazing piece of video footage. I mean, it's, it's very zoomed out again because for security reasons and to not, inter to not intervene at all, we were very far away. But there was this initial kind of uh, standoff between the mother and her bigger juvenile. And then she actually got away. And the, the, the baby that unfortunately was captured um, happened in the middle of kind of the swamp area where everybody had then moved to it. And it was really confusing for us to follow as observers. And this is all we all really pieced. It took us about three days to piece together all the pieces of different information, different video footage to kind of find out what had happened. But the, the baby um, had got snatched from her. They ripped out its intestines and ate it. Roxy, the female chimp snacked on the body of the baby gorilla for hours. So yeah, Roxy Roxy is an older adult female and she's the one who I guess played everybody's least favorite role in the second um, encounter because she's the one who um, ingested the baby gorilla. So she kept the prey and she kind of carried it with her um, and she really fed on it as um, as a piece of prey um, for most of the afternoon after they caught the caught the gorilla. These events are peculiar for many reasons. They share characteristics of other chimpanzee hunts in that the chimps made hunting calls, changed their direction silently, scanned the area, and other typical chimpanzee hunting maneuvers. Although it appears that they targeted the baby gorilla because it was smaller prey, this is where the similarities to other hunting tactics end. The first explanation is that this incident was merely another case of opportunistic hunting by chimpanzees. And so that's something we really touched upon in the paper is that we wanted to emphasize how different this was from hunting behaviors that we've seen in the past and how much more similar this was to an inter-community encounter with other chimpanzees. So they treated the gorillas as if they were kind of 
neighboring groups intruding on their territory um, that they were at war with, which we've never seen them do with guerrillas. And it was very different from hunting. And I think we used the example in the paper where we talk about kind of the noise levels. The chimps made lots of noise before they attacked the guerrillas, but the excitement instantly disappeared and they fell silent as soon as they captured the baby gorilla. And when you hunt, it's completely the opposite. So there's this very silent, um, coordinated hunting strategy. And when they catch the prey, this is the reward. And this is um, then the, the feeding on the prey is the reward. And here we saw that it was almost like the killing was the reward, much similar that it is in intercommunity encounters, where there is also sometimes um, cannibalism in intercommunity encounters. But it's it's not so much about this um, this baby as prey but as, um, I guess, a symbol, you could say, or as kind of like collateral damage within a war or something like that. Another explanation is that the attack resembled intercommunity killings previously performed by chimpanzees against rival chimpanzees in neighboring territories. Adult chimps have killed infant chimps from other communities to eliminate food competition by discouraging female chimps in the competing group from venturing into the disputed territory. However, this attack could be the first time anyone witnessed chimps doing the same thing to gorillas. The event is also unique due to how the chimpanzees ate the gorilla during the second attack. So in, in normal chimpanzee society, males are the dominant uh, sex and they monopolize all the, the best goods, basically. And so and then it will there's also a hierarchical order for females. So higher ranking females will have access to better meat, but it's always usually males first. And so usually when there's a hunt, um, it's also males who are the primary hunters and um, then males who get access to to meat and to the best parts of the meat. And then usually the females will get kind of some of the hand-me-downs. And um, in this case, what we saw was Roxy, um, who's yeah an adult female. She is quite high ranking, um, but it was more, it wasn't so much that she was sharing with, it was that the low ranking individuals um, were the only ones interested in getting any of the meat. So kind of the high-ranking males and also some of the high, other high-ranking females were not at all interested in this, um, in this species or in this baby gorilla as kind of like a food source. Another term you should know is the difference between intra-guild predation and interspecific killings. So a guild is basically any kind of any species that share resources. So species that are on the same taxonomical level. Um, so an example would be kind of um, like wolves and mountain lions. Like a lot of research that's been done on it is in carnivores. So those are a lot of the comparisons. People would never talk about like chimpanzees and um, gorillas, usually because we don't we don't see them in that way. And it's usually um, carnivores because it's about killing another species that uses the same resources as you. Um, and intra-guild implies that then you you there's some like energetic gain from this um, interaction, while the inverse or so inter interspecific killing is the same kind of taxonomic relation, but it's just killing for the sake of killing as a means to lessen any form of competition. So kind of what we could say is like what we saw in the first encounter, where the babe, where this kind of there was a a symbol or the, the gorilla was killed and then they kind of, they didn't feed on it at all. And in the second one, it's a little bit harder to sparse apart kind of what was really happening. Does the study of long-term phenological data reveal if the high levels of food competition result from the recent collapse of food availability due to climate change? Yeah, so they, they have one of, they have the largest, I think, phenology um, banks in, I think, at least in, in Africa, but I'm not sure about the world. 
um, and they monitored tree species um, in one national park in Gabon. It's actually located kind of in the center of Gabon, and they've got a huge um, kind of natural uh, diversity of habitat types. So they've got savannas, woodlands, um, and it's a really big stronghold for some a really important keystone species. And what they what they kind of hypothesized in the paper that um, things were getting both hotter and uh, drier. And so they do they report the statistics in there, but I think it's it's about um, it's about like a quarter of a degree uh, per decade. And that's huge if you're just thinking about in 20 years to come, we're talking like at a degree level of a already extreme, extreme heat and extremely high temperatures um, for these species to cope with. And then also for for species that are frugivores and who rely um, on these really key fruits, fruit species and these fruit um, seasonal patterns. And when you're when you're in a forest habitat, it, it can be like, OK, this fruit is not um, this tree is not fruiting this season. And that doesn't seem like such a big issue. But when it's really on such a large scale where everything is so interconnected, elephants are really like gardeners of the forest and they uh, then they disperse the plants. And I think they also looked at just kind of like the body mass of elephants and they found a five percent decrease in body mass since since the study started. And that's that's huge um, changes that we're talking about. And I think that, you, yeah, what I was saying, you would see the exact same thing in Luango if we if we had that kind of same comparable data set, which hopefully we will be able to do soon. Chimpanzees, I mean, it's been it's been shown in, in quite of a, a lot of research about this kind of people trying to create like um, how chimpanzees map out resources in their head. And they have this it's been said that they have these kind of like mental maps because they constantly know which fruits resources to go back and visit each year at a very specific time. So they seem to have this very innate kind of understanding, um, maybe not innate because it's obviously learned and there's obviously um, certain members of the group that are better at it and that teach others, you know, that there's this kind of rhythm and flow. And we see this in all kind of natural ecosystems that there's really this um, nature has a has a problem and then a solution to everything. And it's kind of like things like climate change that really um, complicate these natural systems. And so chimpanzees just imagine for year after year, they've been going to these same sites and all of a sudden there's these very slight gradual changes, but that will have huge kind of payoffs in, in their daily lives because it will affect kind of their energy levels, their body mass, how able, how far they're able to travel, how tired they are, how able they are to protect themselves against like other groups. There's just so many kind of knockdown effects that we couldn't even quantify at this stage that could be really harmful to not only these populations, but populations everywhere. So, I mean, I'm people, there's, there's countless researchers all over the world doing kind of updated climate change data, but the problem is that it happens in such a, um, in the way to get the data that you got from the Bush paper, that's an ongoing project that's been a really cumulative effort of taking phrenology data on a, such a precise level for like decades now. And that's when you start to see these really, really important patterns. And I think so one thing that we do at Loango is we have a phenology route where we also check the fruiting species. And so this is something that we're cumul we're trying to monitor as well in our own time. And we're looking at our own plant species, but it just is so hard to kind of know what are kind of more like just long-term seasonal trends and kind of a normal variation because you really do need these long-term data sets. And so I think what we did with with the bush paper and everything we, we we've taken a lot from that because I think there you can really see these the drastic figures that they're reporting like huge just the amount of things that are getting drier 
big problems with the rainy season. And there's so many um, fruiting species that really have those like very specific requirements for temperature changes in order to fruit. And so Luango National Park, as well as Lope, is a big stronghold for elephants, gorillas, chimpanzees. So, yeah, it's it's probably exactly the same thing that's happening. We just don't have the data to support it, but we're really working to get there. So chimpanzees and gorillas, they really have this, they have quite a high dietary overlap. They're both great ape species and they both really share a lot of the same food types. Um, and there's been generally what we see in a lot of other sites is that there's quite a level of kind of niche partitioning. And so they've evolved over time to eat different species to limit these levels of competition. But of course, what you get, what we, what we think happens in Luango is that at certain times of the year where there's certain key species that are really kind of, I guess you could say favorite species of both gorillas and chimpanzees that you might get these levels of very, very high competition. And now in this kind of, um, I guess, competitive um, atmosphere that's already there, if you throw in kind of a lower um, production season for all of those fruit species, you're just going to get basically even higher levels of competition. And so we think that this might be happening. And especially for certain years, this might be more kind of pronounced that there's a lot less ripe fruit available if it's a bad fruiting season. And if this continually keeps happening, of course, like fruit um, sources of fruit become more um, kind of clumped and or even more dispersed, but harder to find. And then you're kind of attracting um, two great ape species to a very limited resource. And then this kind of creates the area like a base for any form of conflict, which you wouldn't have if you had kind of a larger abundance of fruits. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of basically fill in all the gaps of what we couldn't fill in in kind of the first paper, because this was really just kind of very exciting research. It was we wanted to get it out there that like, look, this is what's happening. And there's so many angles to look at it from it or why it's interesting. It's interesting from a species perspective, just because we haven't ever heard of this reported across any other field site in which there are both chimpanzees and gorillas. And they do coexist in other places. And this hasn't happened yet. So it seems like there must be something going on. Um, and we really need to, I mean, what you need is long-term data, right? So it's it's a really ongoing process. Um, and I guess what I could say is that there there do continue to be encounters. We haven't had any lethal encounters, but I think that that's also super interesting in terms of like a long data set to see what kind of how these in, um, interactions evolved. And we've only really seen a snapshot of time in both of these species life. We don't know what was happening before we habituated them. And we only start for that. That's like our start. But we don't know what happened before. So it's 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 really a kind of a cool time, I could say, to to kind of start to piece together all the puzzle pieces. So it's a really incredible experience. And I, I thank every I thank the world every day that I get to really experience the lives of one of our closest living relatives. Um, in every way that they're similar to us, they're also so different. And I think that's one of my favorite things about learning about them and spending time with them. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you'd like to receive notifications every time we release a new episode. And if you'd like to help us spread the word about the plight of gorillas, it helps if you leave a positive review because platforms like Apple and Google use it to decide whether or not to let more people know about this podcast. To learn more, go to GorillaProject.org.